The past year has seen a number of disruptions in academia. China's new and deadly coronavirus has been reported here in the U.S. The coronavirus pandemic forced many scholars and educators to scramble to adapt to online teaching and research, sometimes with little training or institutional support. Nationwide, 45 states have shut down schools entirely. More than 52 million students now forced to learn from home. And exposed long-existing systemic inequalities in the field. The pandemic has hit women disproportionately hard. Especially in terms of access to resources and gender imbalances in labor. The pandemic may cause a she-session, and that could impact diversity in the workplace for years to come. But with these challenges have come opportunities to rebuild a more equitable and more inclusive academic environment. The Black Lives Matter movement called attention to systemic racism and anti-black discrimination in all fields, including Asian studies. While increased awareness of widespread inequalities has amplified calls to tear down the rigid expectations and exclusive hierarchies that have propped up the ivory tower for so long. How has the Association of Asian Studies adjusted to new demands for online teaching and learning during the pandemic? What role does the AAS see itself playing in promoting new kinds of academic careers? And how can the AAS lead the way in challenging the ivory tower and rebuilding an academia that is more responsive, inclusive, and welcoming? I'm Tristan Gruneau, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on how the Association of Asian Studies is responding to recent developments in academia more broadly, I talked with AAS president and professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii, Dr. Christine Yano. I started by thanking Dr. Yano for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me, Tristan. I'm, I'm really excited to be part of this because I think this is part of the future of not only Asian studies, but academia in general. You know, this kind of going beyond the printed page and giving, I think, the general public greater access to some of our expertise, but also having us learn from the general public. I think there's just a conversation that has to be ongoing. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate that. And, and, th and that's certainly something that you've been doing as well, engaging the public <laughs> in your new role as president of the Association of Asian Studies, which you took over in March. And I mean, to say that it's been an eventful year so far, I think would be a bit of an understatement. <laughs> There's been a number of developments and challenges for AAS since you became president. First and foremost, of course, was COVID-19 causing some major disruptions, uh, not least of which was canceling the annual meeting in March. You know, as tough as that was, I think we all understand why it was necessary. And we've seen since then other academic associations moving their annual meetings online, other conferences online. In fact, AAS in Asia was just held online this past week. So to start, can you talk about you know, what is AAS planning moving forward with future conferences? Will the annual meeting in Seattle next year go on in person as planned? Or are these virtual conferences here to stay in AAS? That that is the big question, right? And and you know, I'll tell you, Tristan, I'm not going to spill the beans. But <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> it, it's in it's in discussion right now. The discussions are almost concluding. Don't worry. And so there will be an announcement shortly. But I just want to back up a little bit to and just put a little bit of a personal spin on the sense of crisis after crisis that's gone on since I've um, taken on the presidency. So yes, I became president amidst the crisis of the canceled meeting, right? So traditionally, what would happen is I would become officially president at the end of the meeting. 
Of course, the meeting never happened, but I did become president. But, you know, in assuming the presidency, or even when I got elected as vice president, and I saw these blogs that um, Prasenjit was was writing so eloquently, the question that I had for myself was, oh, my God, how am I going to have anything to say? Because I would read Prasenjit's writings, and they were they were wonderful and eloquent, and et cetera, et cetera. And I really thought I'd have nothing to say. And little did I know that I would come into this presidency, I would come into this position amidst crisis, and not just one, but multiple. And it seemed like we hardly had room to breathe. And there was always, in some ways, plenty to say. And I was compelled to say it because I felt that assuming a leadership role meant assuming a certain amount of reaching out to the AAS membership and holding hands, which which sounds really stupid and campfire-like. <laughs> but that's the way that I felt. In, in, um, nobody asked me to write any of these blogs. And I just felt compelled to say something to the membership because there was so much that was going on and writing these blogs was a way for me to process what was going on. So it was a very, it was a very personal and I was just, I was drawn into doing this. I was compelled to do this. And most of the blogs, people might not want to know this, but most of the blogs were written at one sitting and just, you know, um, almost like middle of the night, like scrambling and thinking furiously, and that's what that's what came out. Right, and and as you said, some of these have, have been very personal. In fact, you, you just wrote one at the end of August, where you know, as you were facing the beginning of the new school term, and I think a lot of us educators of Asia were also kind of thinking about some of the same issues as we were getting ready to start teaching class in the fall. And you know, that as a result of COVID nineteen, it's not only the conferences moving online, but now we have this pivot to online teaching and research, and you know, this has presented all sorts of new challenges. And of course, this is something that the board of directors addressed in one of their blogs about concerns about censorship and security or student information, for example. But then you were writing also about, you know, how this is an opportunity for the field to collectively, as you wrote, consider how we can take the pandemic as an opportunity to question the structures of the ivory tower. So could you talk about some of the steps that AES as an organization is doing to support this rethinking, you know, of these structures that perpetuate these hierarchies and the ivory tower that you're talking about? Yeah. You know, AES is not normally a very political organization, right? And and that's been part of its legacy, for better or worse. It, it has been part of the legacy. In fact, part of its kind of tagline that we are a non-political organization, et cetera, et cetera. And in many ways, the current conditions do not allow that possibility anymore. We just aren't allowed that that luxury. And, you know, we aren't allowed the luxury of an isolated ivory tower, if you will. And it makes us, and be, and because of conditions which might include the pandemic, which might include the anti-Asian racism associated with the pandemic, it includes the failed leadership of this country. It includes the Black Lives Matter issues that have been ongoing, of course. It's not new. It's not new. But in the face of this kind of administration, it provides new kind of crises points for all of us that all of us have to face. Because of that, 
then we have to question what have we been doing as members of the ivory tower, as privileged members of the ivory tower? What does our privilege look like? And what kind of responsibilities does that privilege have? So it was partly, you know, the conditions that we are all living through. And my writing these was the assumption that we have things to share with each other. And that we are in some ways, yes, we have access through Zoom, etc. But on, on the other hand, there's a certain sense of isolation. So when I am writing these blogs, it's an attempt to go beyond that isolation and to try to make sense of our shared experiences. You're absolutely right about these crises that academia is facing, not only as a result of COVID-19, but in many ways, COVID-19 has really exacerbated or highlighted some of these systemic crises that have existed in, in academia for much longer, especially, you know, as someone who's going on to the market this year, you know, seeing some of the hiring freezes that are being put in place by universities. Certainly one crisis is in the academic job market. And as a professional organization of scholars, researchers, and educators of Asia at all levels, what role does AAS see itself playing in promoting alternate career trajectories or professional training or support for other forms of academic JSON or non-academic careers? You know, Tristan, when I became vice president, I had kind of four agendas that I would like to accomplish in, you know, in the very short span of one year in which I'm president. And one of them, one, <laughs> one of them was to explore more fully and more critically the non-academic pursuits that should be very viable careers, not only because people couldn't get the academic job, so not only as that kind of the sense of failed plan A, and therefore I must go to the plan B, not only that, and I know that many of the people who are getting PhDs would feel that way still, but I wanted to go beyond that. And I wanted to take it in a positive way. I wanted to see what might call it applied scholarship look like? How might that be engaged scholarship in ways that perhaps even go beyond our initial maybe training and response? And AES was already doing some of that in terms of workshops at academic meetings. You know, that was and is in place. And I think that's a great step. But I think we have to do more to reach out to others. And maybe, maybe Tristan, you can take the lead on this as somebody on the job market. And, and you know, help refigure the ivory tower to expand, to maybe rub a little soot in that ivory <laughs> and suggest that maybe it's some of the gray areas in which our scholarship can really help can really be applied and can really help us and others think through what does it mean to be doing scholarship in this day and age? Where does Asia lie? How does Asia play into our lives in critical ways? And as far as what AAS is doing toward that, you know, AAS doesn't have money, say, to, to support jobs, but it certainly has the workshops, can extend the training and perhaps extend a kind of an open forum to let conversations like this take place. 
That's a great point about, you know, the need to rethink the ivory tower. And especially when it comes to thinking about how applied or engaged scholarship should be evaluated and counted. And this whole idea of what counts in scholarship and particularly digital scholarship is something I've been thinking a lot about myself recently, even writing about in an Asia Now post, you know, thinking about how can we raise the profile and recognition of digital humanities and other forms of public facing digital scholarship. And there are other professional organizations like the American Historical Association and Modern Language Association that have put out guidelines and recommendations to departments on how best to incorporate new forms of public engagement. Have there been conversations in AES along the similar lines? You know, if we're thinking about non-traditional forms of career trajectories, but you know, also how to incorporate non-traditional forms of productivity. So, in other words, non-traditional forms of evaluation or evaluation of non-traditional forms of work. I think because scholars are still primarily housed in the academic silos, whether it's AHA, MLA, et cetera, of their own kind of disciplines, AAS has not tried to compile that into an Asian-focused one. So at this point in time, we have not. We have not. And perhaps that's, that's a failure on our part. At this point, I think that we are still looking to the disciplinary organizations to do that role because it's it's a tough one. If you're trying to think of restructuring the academic hierarchies to see what counts, Asian studies does not have as much clout in terms of kind of asserting new ways of structuring that. So, so the quick answer is no. At the same time, I think we can, we, you know, a lot of this seems to boil down to funding. And maybe all of us can be looking toward newer ways of funding the academic world. So I think the goal is to always try to think out of the box. And, and, and you're doing that. You're doing a great job on that, Tristan. But how might we monetize, because we all have to make a living somehow, how might we monetize some of our job skills, I think is part of it. So sorry, that's not a great answer. It's not that hopeful. But all I can say is that as a field, Asian studies as a field, because it doesn't have the kind of disciplinary kind of structure in itself, in and of itself, because it's primarily interdisciplinary, therefore it has not come out with those kinds of guidelines that you mentioned. And along the same lines of challenging the ivory tower, and especially as it previously existed, you know, challenging some of these hierarchies. Another thing that came up this summer, aside from COVID-19, was Black Lives Matter movement spreading across the country and across the world even. And this came into Asian studies as well. And we, we had four colleagues who, who wrote a very powerful petition, Dr. Julian Thomas, Dr. Levy McLaughlin, Dr. Michelle Wong, and Kimberly Sanders, writing this petition in support of Black scholars of Asia and prompting a, a quick statement in response from the AAS and, and the hosting of a webinar that, that you hosted yourself. And more recently, AAS has strongly supported the scholar strike plan for September 8th and 9th. So could you talk about, you know, AAS commitment to, and, and, and again, steps it's putting in place to support Black and other marginalized scholars of Asia and, and those impacted by these movements, such as the Me Too movement as well? Sure, I, I would love to. And, you know, in some ways, because of our current situation, because we are relying on digital means of, I guess, putting the message out, 
you know, AAS did create a whole webinar series or is, is creating a webinar series of which the discussion on Black Lives Matter was a part. There are other, other webinars as well. But the idea perhaps is to create an ongoing discussion of Black Lives Matter through the webinar format. And I think that's, that's really exciting. That's where we can turn this around instead of it being a disaster in terms of new opportunities for connecting with one another. Um, and so having a series of webinars, a series of conversations is, is one way. But, you know, I'm still trying to think through, and maybe you can help me with this, Tristan, or maybe others out there can help me with this, how to not only talk about stuff, but how to make this actionable is is really important. I think, you know, asking current Black scholars, for example, to mentor graduate students, et cetera, on some of their experiences and how they have overcome them, et cetera, et cetera, might help change some of the climate is one way. But, you know, in many ways, I don't necessarily claim to have the answer. And I think my point is, uh, you know, my role is to serve as a conduit for people's much smarter answers than I can conjure. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm relying on the collective, out-of-the-box, creative thinking of AAS members, people like yourselves, to help us come up with ways that we can do this stuff better, more responsibly, and spread and promote the kind of engagement that's really necessary in this day and age. You know, Tristan, I think what's been kind of significant, people people write to me and they say, oh, I'm so sorry that your AAS presidency is so marred by this crisis, by the pandemic crisis, by not being able to meet in person, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, in some ways, I don't feel that way. I feel that this has actually been an opportunity. As as I said before, you know, when I when I first took this on, I was wondering, oh my God, what do I have to say? Well, this has absolutely challenged me to rethink in in very broad and hopefully deep ways on who we are, what we might be doing, and how that extends hands out, outward to other scholars, to junior scholars, to the general public. And I think this sense of responsibility is actually enhanced by the shakeup that our current era is providing us. We are, we are really shaken up. I don't know about you, Tristan, but I'm certainly shaken up. <laughs> but I'm shaken up, I think, in productive ways. I mean, granted, I don't always feel productive, and some days I just want to go back to bed and just stay there. But but in many ways, the challenge of this era has has truly inspired me, and it's made me lay out the values that I hold vis-a-vis Asian studies, vis-a-vis scholarship, vis-a-vis our our shifting world today, and I can only encourage other people, maybe like yourself, to be actively involved in Association for Asian Studies or whether whatever your AHA, whatever your disciplinary focus is, and including AAS, of course, because you are the future. And I can only ask you all to step up. I've been so impressed by the kinds of responsible engagement by which members have stepped up you mentioned the Black Lives Matter um, for some, absolutely, absolutely. Without that kind of leadership from the members, we would be, we wouldn't be where we are today. So it's only through that kind of engagement by 
members to take on responsibility, perhaps for leadership, is the way that any institution, and I, in, I include AAS, will really move forward in a responsible way. So, you know, thank you, Tristan, for for this opportunity to speak. But it's really speaking with a kind of crisis that I cherish. <laughs> I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University. And this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.